This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Berlin continues to get the blame for a Greek bailout deal nobody believes in, we'll ask what Germany really wants from the European Union. But we begin in Turkey, where a bomb attack on Monday in Suruk, near the border with Syria, killed more than 30 people and injured more than 100 others. The victims were young political activists who were planning to cross into Syria to help rebuild the town of Kobani. The town was recaptured by a Kurdish militia in January after it had fallen to militants from the so-called Islamic State, or ISIS, who almost destroyed it. Investigators believe that a female suicide bomber from ISIS was responsible for the attack. I'm joined now from Saruk by Al Jazeera correspondent Mohammed Jamjoum. Mohammed, what do we know about this attack? Well, Dennis, we heard today from Turkish Prime Minister Ahmed Davutoglu. He uh, he said that uh, they have identified one of the suspects in the attack and that they're investigating any links uh, that this suspect may have with terrorist organizations. What's interesting is that, though, there has been no claim of responsibility uh, from any terrorist groups until now. Uh, so far, pretty much everybody here in Turkey uh, and the region has said that they believe firmly that ISIL uh, is behind this attack. Uh, the Turkish authorities, uh, even as early as an hour after the attack yesterday, had said that uh, this attack uh, bore the hallmarks of an ISIL-style attack, uh, uh, purposefully uh, uh, targeting uh, specific ethnicities and sects. Uh, this was an attack that was clearly aimed uh, at the Kurdish population here. Uh, and it's something that's causing a great deal of anger uh, here in Saruj because there is a huge Kurdish population. Uh, we were at the site of the blast. Actually, we've been here for the last several hours. Um, you had members of the HDP, that's the pro-Kurdish political party here in Turkey. They were speaking to the crowds that had come to pay their respects to the dead. Um, and they were really directing a lot of anger towards the Turkish government. Uh, they were saying things like they believed that um, if the Turkish government had paid more attention to the problem they're having with extremists, uh, crossing the border into Turkey, that they didn't believe that the Kurds would have been targeted uh, in this attack. So they're asking for the Turkish government to protect uh, these populations more, uh, and they're asking for the Turkish government to more forcefully go after ISIL and other extremist groups so that they can remain safe here in the future. Dennis? A Kurdish anger at the Turkish uh, government over its policy towards uh, ISIL is nothing new in the sense that uh, you had this enormous anger about uh, the apparent standing by of the Turkish government as Kobani fell to the uh, so-called Islamic State. And uh, and, and this, this sense of resentment uh, and, and this suspicion that the Kurds feel towards the, uh, the Turkish government with regard to their, uh, what they would see as a kind of a tacit support for ISIS, is that is that uh, suspicion justified? Well, when you speak to the number of people that we've spoken with here today, they say that that suspicion is justified. And in fact, uh, what we've heard is that the pro-Kurdish political party, HDP, that they may actually be setting up points here tomorrow to help protect the area because they don't trust the Turkish government enough to actually, uh, you know, put it, put in the kind of... Uh, of security checkpoints that will be needed uh, in this area. Uh, certainly, uh, the Kurds have, have said for a while up here that they believe they would be targeted uh, by ISIL because it's Kurdish fighters, members of the YPG, 
that were able to go into Kobane and drive out ISIL this past fall. Uh, and ever since then, uh, they believe that ISIL would forcefully target them, and they believe this is a result of that, uh, that, that they are being targeted specifically because uh, the Kurds have been going in, have been battling with ISIL for months. And in fact, uh, many analysts have said that the Kurdish uh, fighting groups are the only ones that have, uh, that have become of an effective uh, force against ISIL uh, up until now. Uh, but yes, there is this distrust because uh, a lot of the Kurds here in Turkey, especially in these border areas, uh, believe uh, that, the, the, that the Turkish government, they will tell you they believe that the Turkish government uh, is actually more against um, uh, Kurdish fighters and wanting to make sure they're not here, uh, rather than uh, spending their resources going after uh, Islamic extremists. So uh, certainly that's something that the Turkish government has denied. The Turkish government is coming out very forcefully since yesterday and on many, uh, many occasions today and saying that they will implement any measures necessary, that they will go after uh, these terrorists uh, with as much force as needed, that they will protect all the populations here. Uh, but really where we are right now, there's a sense of fear. Many people saying they believe that these kinds of attacks will happen more frequently. They hope they don't, but that they believe they will. Uh, they believe that what happened yesterday is a really a, a bad omen, a harbinger of, of dark days to come. Yes. And, and when the Turkish government talks about doing whatever it takes, are we talking about uh, providing better protection on the border, or could they consider further action, like action inside Syria? It's a good question, and that's something that's currently a, a political debate that's going on inside Turkey and has been for quite some time, because we've seen uh, that the Turkish military has really beefed up its presence uh, in, in this border. Uh, it, it's very long border that they share with Syria, and, and, and quite frankly, it is a porous border. Uh, it's a border that's hard to patrol, and it's a border uh, that, uh, that Islamic extremists have been able to cross into and out of uh, into Syria and out of Syria back into Turkey a lot when you, when you speak to the people here on the border areas these past few years. Um, so it's something that, that when you speak to the populations on the borders, many of them will tell you they're glad that there's beefed up security here. But they are concerned about Turkey, uh, Turkey's option of possibly going into Syria or, or, or affecting some sort of military intervention. Uh, there have been some commentators in Turkey uh, the past few months that have suggested that that may be the best course of action, uh, that maybe uh, the Turkish military should go in and forcefully uh, battle ISIL. But there is a lot of opposition to that idea here now, too. Uh, that's something that uh, the Prime Minister Davutoglu uh, and uh, President Erdogan, that's something they're going to have to balance very delicately. It's going to be a very delicate political situation for them, for the AKP party. Uh, but certainly there's been, there's been a lot of speculation about what measures Turkey, uh, how far they will go in order to protect the country, uh, it, not just beefing up security here. Would they actually pursue some sort of military intervention uh, in Syria? It's really not known right now, uh, but, uh, but as far as we can tell and from everybody we've spoken with, it seems to be a pretty unpopular idea, especially in these border areas. Mohammed Jamjoum uh, from Al Jazeera in Saruk, thank you very much. I'm joined now from Nicosia by our Middle East correspondent, Michael Jansen. Michael, can you put this attack uh, in Saruk in the context of Turkey's policy towards Syria? In what sense does this complicate Turkey's policy there? Well, uh, what has happened is that the Islamic State group has um, turned against one of its sponsors, but uh, Turkey isn't the only sponsor it has turned against. It has also been carrying out attacks inside Saudi Arabia, which is also considered a sponsor of the Islamic State. And what Turkey has done is it has permitted the flow of uh, fighters and arms and money through its territory into northern Syria. 
and uh, there continues to be um, a great deal of trade and uh, going back and forth uh, between northern Syria and Turkey uh, by uh, Islamic State elements and other militant elements. The problem is this amounts to a sort of backlash against the Turkish policy of supporting uh, first uh, what they consider to be moderate insurgents uh, who have now become immoderate insurgents and which uh, plan to uh, establish a caliphate in northern Iraq and Syria and expand it. And they have shown themselves quite capable of doing this. But this is further complicated by the fact that uh, there is this whole corridor uh, inside Syria uh, near the Turkish border, which uh, includes Kobani, just across the border from Saruk, which is now uh, under the control of Kurdish militias. And these Kurdish militias have their allies within Turkey, and they've got a great deal of sympathy uh, where the, uh, Turkey's Kurdish community is concerned. Uh, if Turkey were to move into Syria, across the border, to create some kind of a buffer zone, who would actually be the victims of all of this? Who would, they, who would, in fact, who would they be displacing or fighting? Well, I think Turkey cannot do this. I think it is it has gone beyond that possibility. Uh, one of the reasons that Turkey has been supporting Islamic State groups is that it wants them to fight against the Kurds, uh, because the Kurds who are uh, fighting in Syria are connected with the PKK, which is the left-wing Turkish-Kurdish group, which has been uh, demanding either autonomy or independence from Turkey. Uh, The point is, this is why uh, Erdogan is uh, supporting anybody who will fight the Kurds, but he's doing it at the expense of his own country. And there are thousands of Turks who have gone to uh, northern Syria, particularly Raqqa, and even taken their families, and who are fighting for Islamic State. But when you say that this is ISIS uh, turning on one of its sponsors in the shape of the Turkish state, is this attack that we've seen, is that not also, is that not in fact primarily an attack upon the Kurds, given the identity of the victims, that these were people who uh, were uh, going over, they were planning to go over and help to rebuild Kobani? It is uh, primarily an attack on the Kurds, but the point is it was across the border in Turkey itself. And I don't think the Turkish government, uh, especially when their heavy military deployment along the border, will welcome this. The, uh, when I mentioned that the Islamic State group has turned against its other main sponsor, which is Saudi Arabia, they have killed uh, 37 people in Saudi Arabia in the past few months. And also they have um, recruited uh, Saudis to do bombings elsewhere, as in the latest bombing in Kuwait. So uh, the Islamic State is not, as it were, a reliable ally of any of the groups which have been sponsoring it. So far, Qatar has escaped any kind of uh, retaliation or whatever you want to call it. So if uh, a ground uh, incursion or invasion of uh, parts of Syria, if that's not an option for Turkey, what are Turkey's options in terms of retaliation? I don't think it, it has very many options. Um, the northern border between Syria and Turkey 
is controlled by three different groups. The, in the West, it's controlled by the um, Army of Conquest, uh, particularly in the Idlib province, which is headed by the Al-Qaeda uh, official off, offshoot in Syria, which is called Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, in the middle, it uh, is controlled partially by Islamic State, and then in the northeast, it's controlled by the Kurds, who have swept the Islamic State out of the area just north of Raqqa, which is the capital of the Islamic State. So, I mean, which group is the, are the Turks going to hit? This is the point. Are they going to hit only the Kurdish groups? Uh, if they do that, it would, be, it would complicate their lives a great deal on the internal scene. If they, if they hit only the Islamic State, it, would, it could uh, destroy their relationship with Saudi Arabia, which still, in spite of the fact that they are becoming victims of the Islamic State, uh, supports the Islamic State. We heard during the week that uh, British special forces were operating inside Syria uh, in uh, in opposition to the Islamic, the so-called Islamic State. What's the significance of that? I think it's very important. Um, there have been British planes which have been flying over Syria from Cyprus uh, for some time, and last week they. Uh, dropped a couple of bombs on their own airfield in in Cyprus and uh, got the local people very upset because they didn't want uh, British warplanes dropping bombs on Cyprus. Uh, but I think that the British forces' participation, uh, I think it shows that the British government has now realized, finally, that the Islamic State is a major enemy of the West. Uh, it, it continues to uh, adhere to the policy which was introduced by Osama bin Laden when he um, founded al-Qaeda of opposing the West uh, and wanting to see the departure of all Western influence from Muslim countries. And also, his other, uh, the other prong of this policy is uh, against Iran and Shias, uh, because uh, the Wahhabi ideology, which was uh, opened in Saudi Arabia in the 18th century, uh, considers Shias to be apostates or um, people who reject proper Islam. If uh, if we look, Michael, at the uh, rapprochement between uh, the West and Iran, and the likely the deal that's been agreed in Vienna and is it appears likely to be ratified in all of the capitals, what uh, do you think is the likely impact of that rapprochement on the uh, theater of operations in Syria? Well, the Iranians have said quite firmly that they are not going to end their support for, um, for the Syrian government. And it means that the Iranians will continue to provide advice, even soldiers, and also um, arms uh, for the Iranian government's uh, 
uh, army and militias and also to Hezbollah. And Hezbollah has recently been making some gains along the border between uh, Syria and Lebanon. Um, and I think that the, on the internal scene in Syria at the moment, there is a stalemate. Neither side seems to be moving forward in any great way. So uh, the Iranians, if they step up their support, as the Saudis and the Turks and the Qataris did in March, they might make a difference uh, in this stalemate. Uh, The Americans are cooperating with the Iranians in Iraq, and this has become very clear. But the point is now uh, the Iraqi army and the militias, which are connected with it, which are mainly Shia militias, have halted their their assault on Fallujah and also their operations around Ramadi, uh, which means that there could be a number of um, Shia fighters who are free to go into Syria to help bolster the Syrian government's fight against Islamic State. And finally, Michael, uh, if, uh, as you say, the Turkey's military options inside Syria are limited, if uh, not non-existent, then what price, if any, will the so-called Islamic State pay for the uh, bomb attack on Monday? It probably won't pay much of a price. I think it may pay a price with Turkish public opinion, which is and has been for quite some time against the war in Syria and also the war in Iraq. And Turkish public opinion would like to see an end to this war and um, to make certain that the Islamic State doesn't make any inroads in Turkey, any more inroads in Turkey than it has already, because it it, it is recruiting Turks all the time to to the cause of the Islamic State. Michael Jansen, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The Greek banks are open again this week after the country's parliament approved measures demanded by its EU creditors before starting negotiations on a third bailout worth more than €80 billion. Germany's Bundestag voted in favour of the bailout deal, but that didn't stop commentators across Europe from questioning Berlin's commitment to the solidarity that binds the European Union together. So is this criticism fair? And what does Germany actually want from the European Union now? To discuss this, I'm joined from Berlin by our correspondent, Derek Scali. Derek, you sat up all night in Brussels through these marathon negotiations about the bailout, and you also uh, observed the Bundestag debate on uh, on the bailout deal. The criticism of uh, the German government from, around, uh, from commentators around Europe, do you think it is fair? I think it is fair, um, but I wouldn't think it's, uh, it's, it's fair to exclusively focus on Germany. But uh, I think it's fair to concentrate on Germany because I think many people have always held Germany to a higher standard, that 
German unification and European unification are two sides of the same coin. And when you have a country like Germany going into negotiations saying, oh, and by the way, if we don't reach a deal, uh, we can escort you out for five years to a, to a protective facility, Greece, and you can uh, restructure your loans there. That plays very badly. And I think people in Germany have not really quite understood that when the country that is sort of the the the, the founding, the cornerstone of the European uh, currency union starts calling the, the unity of that union into question, that that is considered a problem, that really hasn't computed here. And I think this is a, 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 something we've seen right throughout the Eurozone, that the bad press Germany gets around the Eurozone is written off here as people who just don't get it. And uh, just like... Uh, People here are criticizing Greece and saying, oh, the Greeks just don't get it. So what we seem to have is a sort of collection of competing national narratives, and each person is accusing, uh, they believe that they have a monopoly on what is right for the euro, and everyone else is completely wrong. And this is sort of a, a self-destructive collection of competing national narratives, and, and Germany is now playing the national narrative like everyone else. And I think that's what's new in this eurozone crisis, and that's what's worrying. One other aspect of it all is uh, something that uh, Fintan O'Toole was writing about today in the Irish Times where he was talking about how on one statistical measure or some statistical measures that uh, Germany has been an enormous beneficiary of the creation of the euro as an exporting nation. It has helped to boost its exports and of course the weakness of the euro has made those exports more competitive in markets outside the eurozone. But Germans, or at least in the German uh, conversation about the euro, one often gets the impression that Germans feel that they are actually the victims of the euro rather than the winners out of it. Well, I think this is, again, this is not exclusive to Germany, but it's a very strong uh, narrative here that Germans feel that they are now on the hook for profligate periphery countries' debt. Um, but I think many people in in uh, Ireland feel the victim of a monetary policy that for many years was more beneficiary to larger countries and smaller countries. So we have this victim-perpetrator complex that the victim is yourself, the perpetrators are the others. And again, this is sort of corrosive to a monetary and currency union, this notion that everyone else is benefiting, just we aren't. And um, I mean, the, the issue, of course, for Ireland is that for many years, Ireland benefited from low interest rates as as if it was Germany, until the financial markets realized, oh, hang on, Ireland isn't Germany, uh, Greece isn't Germany. So everyone got their benefits from the Eurozone, but that's, um, as they say in Germany, schnell is potis, schnell vergessen. Uh, if you eat bread, uh, free bread is, is quickly forgotten. And many people have forgotten that every country benefited in some ways from the Eurozone, and then there has been a cost of the Eurozone to every country. And each country has forgotten their benefits, but they, they see the cost and they see the risks that other people, they believe other people and other countries are putting them to. So again, we've got this collection of national narratives and everyone sees the blame elsewhere. Nobody themselves has feet of clay and that's sort of uh, worrying for the long term of of the Eurozone. Uh, For a number of uh, decades, uh, certainly uh, most notably during the uh, chancellorship of Helmut Kohl, Germany was regarded, as you say, as one of the the really uh, driving forces behind behind European integration, and the whole uh, destiny of, uh, of Germany was, for many Germans, wrapped up in the idea of a united Europe at peace and living in harmony. Has that vision uh, started to erode in Germany at all? I think so. I think Angela Merkel has never really believed in the Europe 
in, in a sort of a, in the best sense of the word, in the sentimental value that Helmut Kohl attached to it, where he would go the extra mile, even if it made, didn't necessarily make political sense to him on an everyday basis. He, but he believed in the project. He always cited the, the graveyards of, of Europe as the reasons why he believed this was the right thing to do, whatever the cost. And Merkel believes that Europe needs to go through what it needs to go through now and the reforms Germany is, to, is she always says that the Eurozone needs to emerge stronger from the crisis than it went in because she just looks at Europe as a, a dwindling power in a, a globalized world and she wants to make, she's sort of gone into the Eurozone a bit like a, uh, a liquidator and she's just trying to strengthen the company and uh, set it back out onto a reform path so they can compete in the marketplace so she's got a market oriented view of the Eurozone and much more and she's also got a, a sort of a, a stronger nationalist sense of the German national interest than Kohl ever had. Now, of course, uh, Merkel uses the same language as Kohl. She says what's good for Europe is good for Germany, but I think it's more what's good for Germany is good for Europe, and that, I think, is where Germany's neighbours now take offence. It's which is coming first here, Germany or Europe. And is that uh, a kind of a self-righteousness uh, on the part of the Germans, or is it just a, a matter of self-interest? It's just a new normality. Um, I think Germany could always be relied on when push came to shove. When the when the EU summit dragged on till 3 a.m., somebody somewhere had to write a check to solve this, and usually it was Germany. And we don't see that anymore. Um, Merkel has said that perhaps there will be some debt relief for Greece. That will have to come at the end of something. I'm not writing any checks anymore now, and and that's what's changed. And I think everyone else has not quite realised that Germany won't be writing those checks. Uh, it's right. It's underwriting loans and guarantees, but actual cash to solve an, a, a row, that is how the euro and that is how the EU often worked in the past. And that just isn't the political, uh, Angela Merkel cannot sell that anymore at home. And the notion that the EU is something she has to sell at home uh, is new. So I think Germany has changed uh, and and the EU has changed and the world around it has changed. And, and this is just the way it is. It, uh, Germany is now pursuing a sort of realpolitik with the EU as opposed to a it's no longer uh, it's a it's no longer a uh, a religious devotion the way it used to be. And um, at the end of the day, I think Germany can still be relied on to do the right thing. But Germany now believes that the right thing is what it believes is the right thing, and listening to what France thinks is the right thing or what its partners thinks is the right thing. Everyone is believe everyone believes that they know what is best for Europe and. Um, uh, the notion of a Franco-German alliance sort of listening to all voices and boiling that down to a European essence is what we don't have at the moment. And I think that's where the aggravation is arising from. Let's just talk for a moment about the internal German politics of it. And one of the uh, the interesting things that happened over the course of the last couple of weeks, both in Brussels and Ber- in Berlin, were all of these uh, denials of any kind of a rift between uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, the finance minister, and Chancellor Merkel. And of course, whenever we we hear these denials, we always assume there must be an enormous rift. What's the truth of all of that? I think the rift is is true. Um, I think Wolfgang Schäuble has gone over to the camp where he believes that there's a, a wide number of economists and political scientists here who believe that Greece is best served. Greece's interests and everyone else's interests are best served with a temporary break or a permanent break from the Eurozone. Uh, its its debt can only be restructured outside. Angela Merkel believes that is sort of the beginning of the end. The Eurozone is no longer uh, an irreversible process. And um, she has the last word. He negotiates the detail. She goes 
goes in, dots the I's and crosses the T's. And um, he was pushing for this. He put forward this paper saying a uh, temporary exit is possible. She had to roll back. And since then, he's made it clear to her in no uncertain terms, including on the airwaves, including in the Bundestag, that um, if push comes to shove, you know, he's 72. He's seen it all. Uh, he was in the Bundestag while she was at university. You know, he's, he's a veteran. He has nothing left to lose. And um, if, if he wants to turn, do a thumbs down on the final term of the Greek bailout, there is a risk that he will. And um, this is, uh, he said, uh, in a weekend interview in, the, in Spiegel, where he sort of toyed with the idea of any, any minister who has to respect his conscience and what he believes and anyone who tries to convince him of the opposite, well, they will experience a minister who goes to the president and asks to, asks to be uh, released from his position. And he was asked, are you talking about resignation? And he said, of course, what makes you think of that? So he's toying with that, and he's letting Angela Merkel know that he is the only person she is dependent on. He isn't dependent on her. He can walk away from this, and he can uh, put the boot into the notion of saving Greece and the Eurozone. She knows that, and she has to try and save the situation. And, and what would be the political price for her in getting rid of him? The political price would be that um, she has got this, uh, she has lost the entire right wing of the CDU. Um, she is the woman who sold out Germans' interests in terms of most of the mainstream media here from the, the Bill tabloid right up to the FATZ conservative broadsheet. They all believe this is a disgrace, but they felt, well, at least if Wolfgang Schäuble is in there, there's somebody talking sense. So if she loses him, she loses that. And then she has, I would say, um, that would be the, the, I wouldn't say the beginning, it could be the beginning of the end of her chancellorship in terms of her credibility is now under control or is now, has now been undermined. And Wolfgang Schäuble is a man who dates back to the coal era. If somebody from the coal era is saying that actually, do you know what, Greece needs to get out, um, that has a credibility that Angela Merkel has and that is taken with a, that is taken seriously in her party the way she never has. People like Angela Merkel in her party because she wins elections for them, but Wolfgang Schäuble has deep roots in the party despite his ups and downs with the party. So he has a cr- political credibility in his party uh, and in the centre-right of German uh, political and media establishment that Merkel never has. She's popular because she's popular, but if he decides to undermine her popularity, um, perhaps for revenge of how she shafted him to the leadership of the CTU uh, 15 years ago, um, it, could, it could be very bad for her. So she's headed off for a very unsettled uh, summer holiday. He has two, and he's let her know that uh, she's dangling in the wind pretty much at his mercy. And finally, Derek, uh, to the right of uh, the CDU, the Alternative for Deutschland, which were hailed as Germany's burgeoning Eurosceptic uh, party, they're falling apart. Yes, this is the only small uh, chink of light for Angela Merkel that uh, if, if, if Greece was falling apart and uh, this new centre-right AFD were picking away voters from her, this would have been a disaster. They're falling apart. There's now two camps. The first item on the agenda seems to have been the split and not pointing out uh, the dangers of, of, uh, of uh, Greek bailouts for German taxpayers. So, so she's lost a potential rival, and uh, that's good news for her. But she's lost the AFD, but she's gained Wolfgang Schäuble as a rival, and that is uh, an even bigger threat, I think, to her political credibility. Derek Scali in Berlin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.